Okay, everyone, welcome to Tafcat 6. Um, you don't have Zero today, so it's no jazzy intro with um, all the great things Zero says in the voice that he has. Um, so I'm going to host today, um, and we've got a couple of guests. And if you didn't see before, the rough topic of Tafcat this month is mission execution, which we'll go into in a minute. But um, if you've not listened to Tafcat before, and you're listening live, great. You have the Discord channel Tafcast 6 live chat or Tafcast live chat um, that you can chat along in. Um, but you can also use in this stage feature if you do want to join us at any point. Um, I don't think anyone in Tafcast history has ever joined us on voice, but you are welcome to. That is false. That is Mr. <laughs> oh, Mr. Someone, I forgot the name. Mr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has joined us before and has brought has up his points. You started so out that... strong with that rebuttal and then failed. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so that's totally possible and we'll keep an eye on the chat as we go through. Uh, what typically happens in a TAFCast is the chat gets completely derailed and goes on to a topic that's completely different to what we're talking about, but that's fine. Uh, we'll pick up on it uh, later in the TAFCast. So um, as I said, it's it's merely a podcast form, I guess, of the SITREP and we do talk about things from the SITREP. Um, so we will touch on on this recent sitrep and on the upcoming sitreps, uh, but we'll probably do that in the latter part part of the podcast. Then we're going to kick off talking a bit a bit about mission execution and great timing, really. And we were a little bit late out of overture. We've literally not even done the debrief. I'm straight into here, but uh, a great timing for this particular particular podcast because overture is a really different campaign and um, really suits what we're talking about today. So. Um, thanks for joining and thanks for listening if you're listening live and if you're listening not live then I hope you enjoy it anyway um, so we're joined by uh, Matt Jamko probably Unitaf's longest standing Zeus I'd say and uh, and we're also joined by Zuka who's probably like mid-tier Unitaf Zeus is that right Zuka? ouch <laughs> uh, yes thanks agreed um, did a lot of brimstone and does some other stuff somewhere I'm not quite sure what <laughs> and Jasmine, so we got like a good mix because Jasmine's relatively new to to Unitaf. Although I say new, I'm pretty sure that you already have your like 50 hour game master medal, which, considering all things, is pretty impressive. So, welcome to you thank all. you. Great. So, mission execution, big topic. We've done podcasts before on like mission development and things like that. So. I guess what we really wanted to talk about was campaign specific to um, to Overture, maybe even to some extent to Herrick, because out of all the sort of campaigns that Unitaf's done, those two have been like the least um, full-on conventional war. Uh, I guess the question I was going to throw out is, um, wh- why are we doing this podcast? Like um, we all spoke about it earlier in the week. Um, Overture and um, Daesh. I mean, Daesh was a was a counterinsurgency campaign, which with heavy contact, so is Brimstone. But these are different. Why are they different? And why do we need to change our SOPs and have SOPs that allow us to perform these operations differently? I didn't run this question by anyone, so they're completely stumped. So, uh, do you want all of us to answer, or do you want to like go well, top down? Like whoever, I, I guess, like Matt for Matt and Zuka. Matt and Zuka have been in like more campaigns. So, what's the difference between like 
Pavis and Brimstone and Overture or or uh, Brimstone and Herrick, like for the people that haven't been to both? I think it's a completely different concept. When you've been to one of these operations before, like in that specific campaign, you sort of know what to expect. If you know the GM, uh, sometimes you can even gauge how he would react or how he will re- uh, like play out his missions. I think it's very much important that we have different styles of missions and not just uh, the sometimes just shooting gallery some days, but some slower paced ones, maybe some more investigative ones, some more RP heavy ones. I think all of these have their place, but uh, very dependent on the GM and the type of uh, campaign. Don't you think so, Matt? Yeah, I think so you'll start being able to tell the differences between the different campaigns by obviously the fact that we've got operation for example operation herrick that's got its own missions and such um and each have each generally have their own distinct um the way they run and sort of what kind of what kind of stuff we're going to get up to in the campaign um <clears throat> regardless of the operation a lot goes a lot of work goes into each one um i think it's quite easy to uh, at times to miss uh, when you're on the ground how much work does go into each one because we run every mission obviously as a one-off mission rather than uh, what a lot of units do in that they have scripted missions that they'll keep running um each mission for us is a is a one and done so a lot of time goes into planning um building obviously mission files and stuff um and working with the between the fl and the gms <clears throat> um and it goes doubly for the ones that are very um, RP and Intel intensive. So with the RP and Intel intensive campaigns, it's a case of uh, just managing expectations for what you're going to be going for and trying to get yourself into the into the kind of world that the uh, mission dev team are trying to create for you. Um, and yeah, I think part of this podcast is going to be addressing issues that we've had in uh, getting yourself into that world and you know if you're not if you go into one of these campaigns and you're just there for a gunfight it's maybe not the the one to go for you yeah, and i I, th- I think that uh, matt probably there hits the nail on the head of what, what i think why i wanted to put this as the topic for this podcast which is to well, not only in the live chat to, to get people's opinions on, on this but also to open the conversation on it which is you know we've done close to sort of 500 deployments now we're we're close to 30,000 hours and a lot of that percentage wise is um counterinsurgency but on the heavier end of counterinsurgency on the sort of brimstone end of counterinsurgency and we got very good at that thing so you know um you know don't get me wrong not every brimstone op is is great but when we when we're in that area and we're doing that thing and relatively heavy we're quite good at it um when we started to do Aisha, and I'm probably wrong in terms of Aisha being the first proper conventional warfare campaign, because to some extent I think Hammer was conventional, um, but I wouldn't say things like Ember were conventional. And, and when I say conventional war, I mean where we're fighting an opponent essentially that's of equal or uh, more um power than than we have deploying assets that are equal in technology and force to, to us if you look at the first through and it's fed saying matt's here and matt's one of the uh or the, the campaign manager for aisha we really struggled when we started aisha 
from an execution perspective because i think we're so used to um to not doing conventional is that fair to say yeah um i think part of the issue was was how we deployed um our forces so we expected that um we'd be able to deploy the same force to an objective that we were deploying in insurgency missions and obviously that's not going to fly in um conventional so i think it's, it was a bit of a shot to the system for some of our leaders but we're starting to get to grips with it and obviously when a leader signs up for Aisha now he know he knows that uh it's not going to be um a basket of roses and there's going to be a lot of hard work and a lot of hard fighting but i think that we are slowly starting to improve on that yeah and the reason i bring Aisha up is i think to understand the problem we have now with with peacekeeping and coin is to understand the issues we've had in the past in that you know there are a lot of units out there and i see a lot of applications to people that join units after stay stuff like this you know most units they just do one type of campaign you know they just counter insurgency or they just do conventional or whatever and unit half is all about choice isn't it you pick what ops you go to you pick what roles you want and so it's only i think makes sense that in our deployments we have choice as well and so whereas i'm certain there'll be people in unit that don't enjoy conventional and i'm certain there'll be people that don't enjoy counterinsurgency, and I'm certain there'll be people that definitely don't enjoy peacekeeping. I think it's right that we offer that, and um, they are completely different experiences. Like I, I literally, to repeat what I just said in the debrief, I felt like Overture was like almost playing farming simulator. You know, in that sort of relaxed mind mindset that you have when you're playing a game like that that um, requires attention, but it doesn't require like intense um, attention. And I, re- I really enjoyed it on another level for that reason. Um, but UNITAF's about that choice. So if, if that's not your thing, don't sign up for it. And one of the things that you'll see in future sit reps and you'll see on the roadmap is that we're going to make it very clear via the op center essentially what the op is that you're attending. So even though the campaign gives you a good idea, we need to educate people on what is the difference between conventional war, coin, peacekeeping, and to some extent, I guess, covert operations. I mean, that might be a question to throw out to you all. I mean, including the live chat. I mean, how many different types of operations do we think we can box into? Because it is something that we're working on at the moment. And what we sort of need is we need like um, five or six boxes that we can box every operation into so that we can say to people, this is this, this is what this type of operation is. So that if you don't enjoy that type, you know you can avoid it. Um, rather than at the moment, we have quite vague, I think, types of operations, but we need to be much clearer with them. Yeah, I think I think. Uh, sorry, man. Go ahead. I think no, that that's a really good point because um, certainly as a GM, you know, starting to get into mission making and starting to get into uh, being able to kind of design your way through what people might like, uh, it, it would be very helpful to know what what do people like. You know, do people have a view on the types of operations that they want? Uh, I know some people will just join everything and enjoy everything. Um, I personally, you know, the reason I got into mission making and the reason I started making these, I guess, less conventional or less brimstone type insurgency missions is because I don't particularly enjoy playing them. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy playing a brimstone. Nothing against the mission, nothing against the mission makers, not, none of that. It's my very personal choice. So I, I decided to do something different or try something different. And 
yeah, having that clarity on these are the types of missions that people would like, even if it's a poll, you know, to say, well, we need more of this or we need less of this, it, it would be very helpful. Definitely. And I, and I think from, from, from my perspective as someone that, you know, essentially signs off every operation that we do, in the schedule, I'm always looking for diversity. So, you know, we don't want three counterinsurgency operations in a week and then the next week three conventionals you know we want a good mix so that you know if people are avoiding a certain type we have it and this is just uh to go back to the aisha point um i think we're getting better with aisha you know openly I, 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 most of my leadership hours interestingly in unitaf are all in mostly counterinsurgency or semi conventional but certainly not full conventional and to to top it off um most of my experience is in u.s equipment and not british or german certainly not german equipment so you have that added challenge as well i think that came with Aisha of not only are we now in a different situation where we maybe need to employ different tactics at different paces but also we have equipment that we're not 100 percent sure of the capability of and so on and so forth so the point is whenever you go to a new campaign or the start of a new campaign you have to remember that for a lot of people it's new situation new equipment uh new way of working and so it, it takes a few missions for people to get really under the skin and understand what it's about and whether they're going to enjoy you know that campaign but that's the whole point of unitaf is if you don't enjoy that new campaign that's coming along well it's fine because there's six or seven other campaigns that you can go to um so definitely i, I think that's you know a great point and the the summary of that really is that what you'll see in the future sit reps and it's actually something i'm working on this week is that little tag you see next to the weather on the op center says i think at the moment you've got like 10 or 20 different options is we're working on distilling that down to about five or six and i think and and i'll try and say them now because i think it'd be great if anyone uh f thinks that there's one that's missing but off the top of my head and may forget um, conventional war which we're saying is essentially your your Aisha so it's it's Russia on the US it's it's those real com confrontational deployments and what you should expect from those is the most heavy combat that UNITAF offers and with the most equipment and metal on metal should we say and and then you've got your probably your counterinsurgency which is you know it will vary because counterinsurgency can be quite quiet Herrick if you like but I would put Herrick in a different category. Um, but I would say that's your 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 medium ground. You know, you you expect a reasonable amount of contact, but there could also be some 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 dull points as well. Um, speaking to civilians, and there's definitely role play. There is essentially zero role play in conventional war. Um, there's very little opportunity for role players. I'm sure you have probably worked out in Aisha. So you you don't go from having a battle between main battle tanks and um, you know, rifle teams to chat into a guy about his log cabin, you know, in the middle of the forest. Um, it doesn't really happen. Um, and then the other ones, um, covert warfare. So we're talking about some of the night ops um, and the stealth ones because they're slightly different because they can be in a conventional setting in a conventional campaign, but they are quieter in that if we put a conventional tag on a, a CovOps mission for Aisha, it will be given the wrong impression about what you could expect from that. And, and then a couple of other categories that off the top of my head, peacekeeping, one applies to Overture, 
which is essentially is what it says on the tin. It's mostly humanitarian. Um, there may be some contact, but the focus is on keeping the peace. Um, and then the final one, I think, is patrol. And that's where I put Herrick, which is a lot of our missions are direct action. We're going somewhere with a definitive aim to upset someone or take some action. And that's not what Herrick was, and that's not what a patrol is. A patrol is, you know, they call them combat patrols, I guess, but um, you're stepping off the base and you don't really know what's going to happen. It's some probably somewhere between peacekeeping and insurgency. So, you know, that's something we'll probably write up and we'll have a guide and we're going to change that on the op center so it's got a little eye um, on it so you can click on it. And what I hope will happen is people will get a much better understanding of what each op type is and how heavy the contact and the role play is likely to be in those operations. Because I think, like, I think it was Jasmine said, people will sign up anyway. That's quite true, they will. Uh, but what we want to avoid is people writing in their ARs, you know, need more contact on a humanitarian mission. Because it's it's counterintuitive to the people making that campaign because they're giving feedback, which is essentially uh, irrelevant to the aim of the campaign. So getting the right people in the right campaigns that they enjoy is is key. And my cat decided to ch- ch- type into Tafcast 6 live chat while it's things. Was wondering what that was. At least it wasn't like double G. Yeah, exactly. She she does like throwing smoke grenades. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, out of those categories, does I mean, does anyone think that there's anything else we could be doing to get the right people into the right missions and to more clearly explain what either campaigns or operations are in terms of how ferocious the contact will be or how heavy the role play will be? Because I think a lot of people that have been here a while know, but then it's probably people that have been here or that are newer to UNITAF that don't really know how to find that information? I think we've done... I think you're expecting to expand upon the operation types uh, soon anyway. So, And with the recent um, development of adding the situation to the uh, orbat, so you can right off the bat see what, in general, the situation is and what's going to be going on in the mission. I think information has definitely improved. Um, the only thing that I could think of adding is maybe some kind of, um, don't take this for word, but like a temperature indicator or something, uh, some kind of indicator, like from, I don't know how you'd scale it or anything, but next to where the operation type and weather is, just some kind of temperature scale for what the contact is going to be expected to be or um, how much shooting you're going to be uh, expected to do. Yeah, I think that's something you can sort of gauge as a mission maker, like how much contact would they expect yeah. or how much do, do I want them to take in this operation? Um, well, I think we'd have to speak between the officers on the best way to sort of uh, do that, but like something that kind of that kind of region um, <laughs> and figure out whether it whether it be like color based, like green to red, or whether it be like number based, like one out of ten score or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's worth looking into. I think. I think another thing we could do, and it's great because we're almost thinking out loud here, this is something that we're working on in development like literally right now, so that can sort of influence it is in, in, in any way, maybe we do it in the account settings so that, you know, we, or, or, or the role preferences center, you know, where it asks you to update your preferences. Maybe as well as putting your combat areas, you know, on a monthly basis, it asks you to update, you know, what type of ops are you really interested in, you know, and do the same traffic light system. So green, yeah, I love peacekeeping. Uh, in Jasmine, Jasmine says he didn't like Brimstone as much. Maybe he marks that as red. 
Um, and then maybe if you sign up to an op that's against your preferences, it just says to you, you know, you are are you aware that this, you know, this op is a humanitarian mission, and you, and you said you don't like humanitarian missions, for example, um, because it is all. And this is an interesting topic because this is like a behaviour that comes out of the after action report system. We're essentially gaming the after action report system, and from a statistical level, as officers, we're we're looking at it globally and going right. Actually. We'll come on to it at the end of Tafcast, no doubt. But if you look at the stats for July, uh, it's the end of July now. The stats are really good, considering we're in summer now, and um, you know the activity is back, the ratings are up, which is surprising considering the the time of year and and where we're at right now. Um, but we're we're always looking at it globally and going right. How can we get them up? And a lot of this conversation is about it's not necessarily that the mission was bad; it's that the person that went to the mission had a different expectation of the mission than what actually happened. And had somebody signed up for it that knew and read the op board and understood what they were signed up for, gone, the rating would have been higher. And and that's the where that comes from. Um, so we talked a little bit about, about that. And I think the classification of missions is important and that, that's one of the parts of what we're doing. But and, and I don't know how much of real examples we should use, so uh, I'll leave that at the discretion of the guests that are with us. But the problems persist no matter what. So when an operation has been scheduled, um, there's then uh, we, we've introduced, as Matt said, the new situation feature. So this is all about this long-standing thing about well, you know, we want the op board earlier, and that's great. And anyone that's planned ops with UNITAF knows that the process of getting to an op board is quite complex and I can go into it if people want, but I won't off the face of it. Um, but to get to a final op board, there's a lot of discussion that has to go on between the field leaders, the campaign managers, and then the briefings have to take place. And really to get a complete op board, um, you know, it takes time to, to do it right. And so they usually come out on the day of the op, which, you know, and then sometimes in the hours before the op, which could be less than ideal, but, um, one of the things you'll notice today that's changed is in the last week and, and since the SITREP is that, yeah, now the mission pings that you get in the mission pings channel have the situation in them. So you've got a rough idea of what's what's going to happen and what, what maybe the flavor of the mission is. And, and it's also shown on the all back screen. So when you're viewing the slots before release, you can see it there. And, and today, a few more changes were made to that. So it sort of truncates it after 300 characters, because if it's too long, and then when you click on it, and, and the biggest change I made is if you go to the op board and the op board's not released yet, it just rewords it and it calls it a, a warning order. And it gives you the the initial situational briefing instead. And then just in red, it says, by the way, the full op board's not released yet. And that's not what you're reading. And so basically, you've got a much more detailed space to write when you originally schedule your mission to write out what it is so that you know, people that are looking for the op board, but it's not out yet, have a lot more meat to go off. And this is all about, the, again, crossing that gap between someone signed up for something and how much information can be given to make sure that either the slot they've picked or the team they've picked or even just the operation they've signed up for is something that they're going to gonna enjoy. Um, and I, I guess that's something that, you I mean, you've all written op, op boards before. Um, how important is, is that situational bit going to become? Um, maybe we talk a little bit about op boards and how, how they're pulled together for people that don't know. 
I think having the GM, like as soon as he schedules something, uh, like doing a quick quick write up of the situation of it is very important because it just gives you again this like base layer of oh we're going to do this it's going to be like it's going to be this type of mission because what i don't know if this is actually the case but a lot of people i don't think look at the operation type that they can see on the website they just go oh it's a brimstone so it's going to be like every sunday's brimstone or i know what i can expect because it's this operation and I don't know if Brimstone was just a bit of an outlier there, like, for, again, for example, Herrick or Pavis or whatever, if they had a more consistent schedule of what was coming at them and what the type of operation was. But with Brimstone, we've had the full spectrum from everything from Presence Patrol. It has sort of spiraled into, well, direct action to a point. We have had SF missions. We have had uh, the full scale of things. So I think, I think to add yeah. to that, Zuko, which is a good point that you raise, is I think some campaigns um, stick to a classification. So, like maybe Parable always sits in a covert classification, in that there's the potential for heavy contact, but it's to be avoided by default. So that most campaign, most missions, if you like, are classified as covert, and therefore you should expect low to medium contact. Let's say. You're quite right. Brim, Brimstone is quite diverse in that it's probably seen every possible type of operation from humanitarian to covert to to conventional because we've you know been fighting against some pretty tough stuff at times or, or large numbers to counterinsurgency. So, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it, um, it gives even more ammo, I think, to the campaign managers. If, if a mission or a campaign started as humanitarian, but we've royally fucked it up, and it started to turn into a conventional, then that that's what the a classification system would allow you to do, basically. But I do agree a lot of people will uh, go to an Aisha and decide they like Aisha over Brimstone and therefore keep going to an Aisha. But that doesn't mean that we should um, not use subclassifications within those campaigns because we've had some great uh, roleplay ops in Brimstone that have not been heavy contact. And, um, you know, they've done really well. Exactly. I think uh, this, the, the slider that Matt proposed is a pretty good thing because, again, mm-hmm. as a mission maker, you can gauge that. Oh, sorry, Jasmine. No, no, I was going to say similar to that. Go ahead, Zuka. Yeah. Uh, and again, as you said, a reminder, if you, as a preference, oh, I'm more into conventional stuff, I'm not really into the RP side of things, then having that reminder to just tell you, hey, this is going to be more of an RP heavy op, you're not going to shoot too much. And I'm pretty sure we'll see this in the AR for today's mission that for, it wasn't clear for some people, or maybe it was too late already, and they were already signed up and already loaded in. Uh, I mean, I think we have more than enough safety nets to ensure that no one attends a mission they don't like, or like in a type they don't like. Again, we have a type of operation. We have the Warnord. We have, ma- again, many different safety nets there. But yeah, I also don't think it's a bad thing to have one campaign uh, span different operation types. It just, for me personally, it just opened it up a bit more and me being able to uh, look at an AO and say, hey, this would make for a good SF mission and not having, uh, like, uh, not being bound by saying, okay, yeah, this is, all of this campaign has to be a coin op. Like, all of this has to be coin ops. So, yeah, I think that's a, it's, it's a good thing to have some variation in the campaign itself 
I love that yeah. visual idea that sorry, Jasmine's keeping joking. I love that visual idea that Skates just posted in the live chat about having like um uh, I guess an illustration of ammunition. So for this it's got a single round, you know, I guess for an op like tonight and then you've got four and then a whole rack and then literally cases of ammunition is a nice way to to visualize it. Sorry, Jasmine, go on. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think it is, uh, it, it's a very good thing to have operations that, or campaigns that allow you for multiple levels of operations. Uh, you know, it's very easy to pigeonhole something, but you don't really want to do that with everything. So, like you said, Matt, I think Parable fits very nicely into the spec ops, you know, covert operations type thing. And it's it's hardly going to deviate from that. It's not going to turn into a, a full-blown conflict. Although after the last mission, you know, the entire Iraqi army is out to find us. So maybe, but uh, it, it is finding that niche where the operations fit within that campaign. But it is fantastic that we have things like Brimstone that allow you to go uh, broader and, and run different types of ops. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, I think I think a wider sense we we have traditionally only done really, I guess, counterinsurgency, or I say counterinsurgency. Matt used the term semi-conventional, which I guess is a good way of putting it. You know, for certainly the first year, uh, other than a few covert operations, most of our stuff is was semi-conventional, and we've just started to to do full-on conventional war with Aisha and, and somebody mentioned Vertex before and I'd probably agree that was a good stepping stone to Aisha um, and they're completely different experiences um, I, I enjoy Aisha you know I'm leading Sunday's mission but I find it much more difficult as a leader than than you know Brimstone and for obvious reasons you know we have the upper hand in Brimstone already <laughs> you know with drones and things like that and the fact that the enemy don't have that um, so obviously it's going to be more difficult as a leader and that can make it more stressful sometimes as well as, as all the leaders will attest to. Um, and so this is just another stepping stone, I think, into going full circle and saying, well, we've, you know, we've done that. So now we're going to have a, a really different experience. And, and like I say, coming out of over, I mean, what, what was everyone's thoughts coming out of Overture? Because coming out of that, I, I did sort of feel like, actually, that's nothing like any mission I've ever played. I mean, probably even since before Herrick, because Herrick was more comparable to most missions, I think, than that was. And, and I did not enjoy like I actually genuinely enjoyed that for its pace. And it'd be interesting to see if anyone that was at Overture in the chat uh, felt the same way. Obviously, we weren't at the front line. We were sat back chatting to Sibs and things. But how did everyone else find it? I thought it was a really good start to the campaign. Hopefully, there's more to come of the same. Um, I think it was very Herrick-esque. To be, to be honest, uh, myself. Obviously, it's in a different setting. Um, and the there's a bit more nuance to the potential enemies that we're coming across rather than it being a bit more black and white that Taliban are bad, civs are potentially bad. Um, here we've got civs are potentially bad. There's multiple factions knocking about that may be bad, may be good. Um, so there's a bit more mystery, perhaps, to it. Um, and more for us to uh, start getting putting the feelers out and seeing what's going on in the area around. And I've seen what Jasmine's been doing already with probably uh, and the sort of intel and backstory to that. So quite excited to see where Overture goes. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. I think you know it. It, it almost felt like 
the pace was very slow, probably on the ground. It certainly wasn't for the GMs, I can tell you that. There was a heck of a lot going on and, and trying to make it balanced and make it feel good for people. Um, but of course, we always knew it was never going to be a, a massive gunslinger shootout. Um, I would very much appreciate people's comments on, on how they thought it went. And, you know, even if you want to just send me a message on Discord, I like this, I didn't like this, etc. I, I did get one Intel message from somebody that was on the op in the middle of the op. So I think people are starting to know my style a little bit, which is kind of Intel heavy. Whatever you provide as far as Intel goes in this mission will have a direct impact on your next mission, which is the way I, I like to play things. And I think the way that you know Intel driven missions should go. I'm not sure Overture is going to be as Intel intensive as maybe a parable, but it, it still plays an important part in that. Um, yeah, I think one of the things is is trying to make a mission feel real. If you, you know, I've been lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time in Africa, and I've traveled through places in Africa, and I've seen fourteen-year-old kids carrying an AK-47 herding their goats, and I've seen uh, the tribe who really doesn't like the tribe next door, and I that was the realism feel that I wanted to bring to Overture. Sometimes it's hard to convey all of that information in a you know one or two page upward, but uh, that's the objective of of trying to do uh, an overture. Yeah, and I said this to Jasmine coming out of of the operation, and this is the same for anyone listening that leads or game masters. You've got so much information coming at you that everything either feels like it went terrible, terrible. Well, usually always feels like it went terrible. And what you got to remember is that each person experiences it from a, a single first-person point of view. So, like, I chatted to three, four, five sifts tonight, and then, you know, somebody in another course I would have chatted to somebody else, and I wouldn't have got to experience that. I mean, luckily, we've got Twitch and clips and stuff, you know, which we didn't have 10 years ago. And so we get to experience all of these things secondhand and uh, see them for what they are. But, I mean, from my perspective, and I was at the rear of basically everything with Matt and you know, it felt real. Um, there was the usual funny, you know, sort of civ RP, but it was, very, you know, all very realistic. And the in, the the thing is, it puts you in this mindset. Like, think of a brimstone, and and I enjoy brimstone just as much as I enjoyed overture. I think, if anything, when you're not when I'm not leaning, you know, I can relax a little bit more. So, if anything, it's a little bit more enjoyable. But um, you know, you step out of the base on brimstone, and that's it. Rounds fired, and everyone's guard is up. You know, you're instantly in combat mode and everything is finger on the trigger. But, but what this sort of mission does is it strips that right back and there's nothing, there's no sensory overload that puts you into a, a combat readiness state. So your guard drops and, you know, suddenly the 360s aren't being done and, and there's a lot less. And it's a completely different experience. And, you know, half of that mission, I was just chatting to civs about their medical conditions or... I found a civ that had a frag grenade in his car and all this sort of stuff. And this is stuff you just don't get the opportunity to do in other missions because um, combat precludes that from happening. It's no longer important because combat overrides everything. And so until you have a, a campaign, and Herrick was a slightly more militarized version of, I guess, what we've just come out of in Overture, but unless you've got a scenario that lowers that threshold for combat enough to allow you to explore these things, I don't think I've ever been in a mission, ever where we've treated every enemy battlefield casualty that we've seen and body bagged every battlefield fatal that we've ever seen. And I'm pretty sure tonight, at least of what I saw, every single enemy that we killed outright was body bagged and their weapons confiscated. 
and everyone that we didn't kill was treated and cap- captured and I don't think I've ever seen anything like that yeah I, I agree I think uh, certainly for me it was the first time I've ever <clears throat> ever seen or been on a mission like that as well um, th- there was definitely a lot of moments during the mission of oh shit what do I do now you know, uh, this guy's just come up to me, said he's going to trade me 15 morphine sticks for information. I need the information, but do I give him 15 morphine sticks? Maybe on a brimstone you would. Uh, this is the UN, you know, do you do that? Out of interest, what happened to that guy? Because he never came back for his morphine. <laughs> oh, he can't say, sop. Paul Bex was waiting there for one of the, days. One of the things that, again, this is a great example of this, this same thing which is the the guy i talked about that had a grenade in his car um you know we, we were essentially running a checkpoint at one point and this black car comes through and you know jari is one of the patrols at the front and they stop it and speak to the guy and give him some fanta and an mre or whatever and you know like five minutes later that same car comes through the other end of the checkpoint and he stops and one of the engineers just so happened to be you know with a mine detector on his car and they find a frag grenade in his boot and so like we're radioing around saying you know like is a frag grenade legal because we know they can carry weapons but frag grenade and it was also an m67 which is a it's the same frag grenade that we use so it's a little bit suspicious anyway this civ's claiming like he he's not picked up the grenade we must have planted it in his car and i mean i genuinely thought for one minute maybe we have like maybe someone planted it in his car really? like, and and i don't know like what and i don't really want to know whether somebody planted it as a joke or not and that's the sort of dilemma that i spent 20 minutes dealing with instead of just a, a mundane yeah. firefight to some extent not that firefights are mundane but what it does show you is that there's levels to experience and um i guess my point is that in a brimstone you cannot do this because the the contact threshold is too high that it does not make sense to go from that to a firefight and then back again thing is with brimstone if you have like big orbats like we do on sundays i can't support this type of uh, operation with well enough our peers i no, can't make it interesting for everyone i think the, the point Zuko, is that you that's not what anyone wants exactly exactly because you, you already have this expectation of brimstone and that sort of like slowly ramped itself up uh and not that i have anything against it but uh th- that's why i like this variate like having this variation one thing that i always notice with operations like the one we had today, Overture, is that sometimes you have some like Arma uh, hiccups, mess ups, whatever. And like this one AI is bleeding on the floor. All the players are focusing on that, and I'm pretty sure anyone who's ever played D and D can, or like uh, Dungeon Master in D and D can tell you this. Sometimes your players just focus on the completely wrong things. Like it's just supposed to be a buy to buy, and someone just com- uh, concentrates way too much on that. Same as maybe the type of grenade, maybe the RPR just put like any type of grenade in there. You just put an M67 in there because all oh, that I know that's a grenade. Uh, maybe there wasn't much thought put into, <laughs> yeah, yeah, escape murder hobos. Maybe there wasn't much thought put into like what type of grenade it is, or maybe he just then played it off. And I think that's interesting in its own right, but sometimes it's hard to keep the players focused on like what they should be focused on. Definitely. And I think you're right. I, I suspect there was no intention with that whatsoever. And I don't like, I don't, again, I don't want to know. And it's part of our sort I guess, to some extent that we don't know these things. And Jasmine probably does know whether that was intentional or not. And, and maybe that's interesting or maybe it isn't. But uh, I think the, 
the the point is that in in a brimstone in a in a vertex in an Aisha, yeah, I, I know a lot of game masters will relate to the fact that they probably put these little nuances in the missions and they feel like the players don't notice them and that is probably true for 50% of the players but you know in Aisha, you you don't really have the mental capacity to to I guess really focus on intelligence because a lot of the focus is on where am I, where is my buddies and how do I make sure that, you know, we don't get shot in the next five minutes. You know, in an overture, in a Herrick, the majority of your time focus is on garnishing intelligence, chat to people. The contact is is a is something that might happen and it's nice if it does, but the whole thing is about, you know, role play. It's closer to like the GTA role play servers, isn't it? To, than it is probably to to combat and, and that's not a bad thing again it's just about levels i think um so i guess zuka what i'm saying is in, in like a brimstone you can add these things but they're less likely to be noticed because the main focus of that operation is is combat not um i guess a, a storyline or intelligence um during the, at least the execution phase if that's fair to say yeah, yeah. and i think uh William put up a very good point here, like that a civilian yeah. vehicle in a brimstone is just automatically by association assumed to be a VBID. Yeah. Which is which is a fair point. Um yeah. so, so sorry, I've just seen this comment from Skull, which is so true, right? So this is that op and, and anyone that was on it can relate, like so many things happen in that op would just just wouldn't have happened in normal ops because you don't have the time and Skull has <laughs> just made this point. I walked past Skull Collector and he's with someone else and they were looking at, you know, the normal ammo crate that says ammo on it. And they were talking about the opening mechanism of the box and they're like, Do you think that like clips off there? How do you think the lid comes off? Like they had that much time on their hands. They were discussing like the mechanical principles of an ammo box. So that just gives you an idea of like how much they had to do. But I, again, that's not a bad thing. I don't think anyone would come out of that. I, there will be some people, but I think the majority of people won't come out of that and say that was completely boring. I think a lot of people would have been enriched by the the role play and the the time that they actually had to speak to the people. In many missions, you probably don't get to chat to the people you play with as much as you maybe did in that. And yeah, that's for example one part I really liked about Enduring Freedom because. You never knew what you had to expect because you didn't have like an actual human controlling the flow of the mission. So it could just be that from one point to another, you're just completely being overran by two squads of infantry. Uh, you're being grenaded to high hell and back and stuff like that. So it's always nice to like have something unexpected. And I think Jasmine put that really well in the overture. But one thing, uh, Jasmine, you'll have to watch out for and... Uh, speaking of out of a bit of experience here, like any single little detail you put in, the players will pick up and will try to like make a thread of it, like try to connect it, like have this big cardboard box on on the wall and just putting pins everywhere. Oh, like oh, there's some some Greek writing on this one crate. How is this connected to the big story? How, how oh, what what what's happening there? Yes, exactly, William, like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it, it is. Uh, it, well, I. I... I can say that you know that is deliberate uh, in some instances. I don't want to give too much away, but you know it is deliberate in some instances, and in others, it it isn't. Um, and sometimes you put something down that you think, oh my god, there's no way they're going to miss this one. You know, this is this is absolutely easy. This even 
you know, anybody could drive past this and see that this is out of place and they drive right past it. So today in Overture, we had put a guy with his goats right outside the base. You know, he's carrying an AK-47. He's the main guy. He had a lot of information for you. <laughs> and what do the first three bigs do? They drive right past him. <laughs> so it's like run out in the road, stop them. You know, they, you need to give them this little bit of info. And that's, I, I did I, talk to him. I did. You talk did. To him, in you my did. defense. <laughs> <laughs> but but that is the beauty of of RPing sometimes, you know. And uh, I think it definitely gives a bit of flavor to to those occasions as well. I think a lot of people that aren't involved in uh, we're not we're certainly not the only unit to this. But but one of the things that makes us very different is that you know our our missions are not scripted nor predetermined pretty much in any way. And like Jasmine just said, I, I ran a, a Brimstone special op uh, a couple of months ago. And um, it was the one where I had two, two, of, two people um, who, who were, you know, meant to be, if you like, um, survivors of a helicopter crash. I think Charlie and Crossy were with them. And I was planting some intel on the helicopter, some quite important intel that, you know, if they read it, would have gone really stellar direction to the mission and for some reason even though it was in the most prominent of places you know they didn't see it nor nor read it nor pick it up and, and this thing happens all the time you know you try and leave clues for the players and like like uh, zuka says you know they start plotting they they see something completely irrelevant to what you were trying to portray and they end up two kilometers away from where the main area was supposed to be and you know sometimes as gems maybe we try and push them in the right direction and provide additional clues send a sieve in on a motorbike that gives them the tip off or whatever but you know sometimes as gems we just let them crack on and uh, see where they yep. go and <laughs> see where it goes <laughs> yeah honestly you could probably have a big like virtual glowing like neon sign above us uh, above a crate or something that says intel here and they would still be like hmm I don't think that's supposed to be there, so let's ignore it. So sometimes it's just, uh, yeah. Sometimes yeah. they look way too much into it, and sometimes it's like, oh yeah, that must have been a must have been a Zeus fuck up. Like with, for example, today's mission when we heard explosion, like, oh okay, that must have been armor like blowing up a vehicle or something. Mm -hmm. Then it happened again. Like, hmm, let's ask, let's ask the, the GMs if that is intentional or not. <laughs> oh, I mean, you bring you bring up a really good point there, which is that. Uh, I mean, I've said this before in some of the debriefs I've done and things that, you know, as, as a GM, the most frustrating thing is when Arma lets you down. Uh, and there hasn't been a single mission in, I probably, I don't know, run uh, by myself, you know, creating missions, etc. more than a dozen now. Um, I, I don't think there's been a single mission where I haven't at some point thought, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> Why do I even play this game? It drives me absolutely mental. Uh, but we keep coming back to it. Exactly. I'm going to come on to that next because the game, we always joke about it, but the game is only one of the assembling blocks I think that, that you have as a challenge as a GM. But just, just before we do move on to that topic, um, has anyone in the, in the live chat got a question either about, I guess, what we've just discussed or, or that they've thought of? If so, shove it in the chat or you can... Ping uh, me. Click the click, click the button in in the Tafcast chat that has the uh, arrow. I think it's request to speak with the little hand. It's a little hand. You're, yeah. you're welcome to to come up and. Would be great to hear from people. Yeah. It would be great than just that random guy that Zuka mentioned from Tafcast too, or whatever it was. Haynes. 
Manaus. Right. No, that was Manaus, yeah, Manaus back then. I remembered. Anyone name. is welcome. Of course. Uh, but yeah. Is so, it? oh, Ains. Hello. Hello. So, on your last point about the operations not being pre planned, the lost enduring freedom, which didn't go planned at all, uh, that's a great example of it. I guess in what in what um, in what way uh, pre-planned uh, that you know exactly how things are going to happen. For example, in some of the brimstones, we know we're going to attack one point, then the next one, then the next. Oh, one. I'm with you. I, so I think yeah. So the last enduring freedom for anyone that was on it, um, me and Ains were jamming, and um, it was on the oil field. And I and I said to Ains at the start, and I didn't pre-brief Ains. Ains will correct me if anything I say is complete rubbish. Um, I think I basically said to Ains and the role players, I said, there's this oil field, um, what they're supposed to do is go and set up and then get their binos out and basically just overlook it. And then what will happen is like some suspicious stuff will go on. So like civilians will be moving boxes from trucks and stuff. They'll go, oh, look, there's a civilian moving box from stuff in like normal current incidency. They'll make notes, they'll go and investigate and whatnot. And then at some point, you know, this attack starts and whatnot. And what happened 30 minutes in Ains? They just walked right into the oil field and alerted the enemies that they were there. Yeah. So they so they just waltzed and um, well, the, basically the British forces were in full British camo, just walked straight into the oil field. Of course, the storyline was that the the Taliban, if you like, were looking to raid it. Well, I just posed the question: if you were a Taliban dicker on the side of a hill with some binos and you saw a platoon of British infantry going into an oil field that you were planning on attacking, what would you do? You'd probably cancel the attack. You'd probably attack go home. <laughs> so there, there's a bit of a dilemma there. And this is a, a great point. There's a bit of a dilemma there as a GM, which is, and and we've had missions that have gone both ways, and, and I don't want to pick any particular one, so I only invite the other GMs to bring up examples if they've got them. But in that instance, I had two choices as, as the SGM. One was I could just go, right, uh, the Taliban in this situation would pack their bags and go home and just end the mission there without a bullet being fired. But, you know, instead I just chose to, to continue it, but at a slightly different pace to what it was planned to be. So it was it was planned to be a relatively low contact um, mission. But because of that, I sort of, I guess, just decided that the Taliban would take the opportunity and, and attack in bigger force. So what we actually ended up doing was... Um, and anyone that was on that mission may have come away with the feeling that they were doing not a lot for a long time. And the reason for that is that the enemy were originally going to attack frontal. And because you became known to them, what we actually did was we just waited longer. So we probably gave it another 20 minutes before the enemy attacked and we moved them round to to the flank. Basically to simulate the fact that the Taliban had seen you, knew that you were there, and then they decided to attack from the direction that you weren't defending from. Um, so that is a great example that brought up of, of the fact that the mission, whilst we do all this process of like mission planning and execution, and I think probably even said to the field leaders of that op, don't go into the uh, oil field, although I probably didn't say it as explicitly as that, is that, and, and that's literally the next topic I guess I was going to come up. Jasmine said there, you know, you're as a GM, you're battling against the game. You're also battling against the field leaders, the op board, and everyone in the op, you know, down to a single rifleman. Because sometimes the action of one player, irrespective of position, can have an impact on the entire deployment. Speaking of like stories about a, a dickers being well, sort of a turning point in that case, I had that once when I had a dickers on a 
tower. I had some IDs placed. I had them rigged up to a telephone, like a just a mobile phone. And what ended up happening is that with just two IDs being placed, I basically held up the entire force. It was, I think, even more than a platoon. And uh, sort of faced the same dilemma as, as you said, like, oh, well, this guy sees an entire force there. Would they prep it more? Would he try to hold them as long as possible? But from a gameplay standpoint, of course, I can't expect the entire player force to just stand there and look at this guy and, and do some wiggles with him or whatever. Uh, so dickers are a very powerful tool in more ways than you would expect and sometimes more than uh, more than you would have liked them to do, so to say. Yeah. No, that's a great point, though. Thanks, Ains. And um, like I said, if anyone's got any other questions, um, again, stick your hand up or in the chat and we'll, um, we'll definitely address them. But that was a great question because it sort of leads into the topic that we're going to talk about. And I guess the question that I wanted to pose to these guys, and again, I, I don't want to pick on particular missions because I'll try and only pick on the ones that I guess I've been heavily involved in. But leave it to these guys, I guess, or, or you in the chat to, to bring up ones that you've been involved in from a, a design or execution perspective. Which is um, when we, if you're not familiar with our process of making missions, you know, usually we have a concept of like what we want to do. So uh, to use that same example of the Enduring Freedom one, I had the idea of overseeing the oil field and this sort of watching an attack unfold and then joining it midway through as an assault. That was my concept. And so when I approached the field leader about it, I explained that concept to them and we sort of had a bit of a back and forth before it became a mission. And um, you, you know, that's the first hurdle. Um, you know, during execution, there's so much that's out of your hands as the GM. You know, you, you rely on the field leader so much to to execute the concept that you sort of came up with. And they don't all go to plan, but, but part of the beauty of UNITAF is that even missions that don't go to plan, sometimes people don't, you know, realise they go to plan. They don't go to plan. But I guess the topic was more about how we can avoid that happening in the first place. And there's been a lot of recent missions that, have had these problems and i guess to bring it back to the sort of main theme of today's tafcast which is these non-conventional operations there's loads of recent examples of missions where the concept of the mission has been derailed by player actions and that can sometimes result in a better mission or a worse one but it certainly takes it further away from the concept but it's important to stress that missions going exactly to plan is not something we want anyway you know we don't want to have a concept for a mission and always to go exactly to plan because then it means we're contriving it i think too much but um enjoying freedom was definitely one of those and you know you saw the re changes we brought out recently and the dealing with prisons and those changes are a direct result i think of those missions which is we've recognized i think that there's a lot of player action which is out of step with what we want from player behavior like um, in, in Enduring Freedom, there's no reason why um, non-combatants should be, you know, should be killed. And if they are, how do we deal with that? And how do we result in that action? And I think what we're trying to do is affect a change in player behavior um, for players that are really used to conventional and, and um, I guess, high contact counterinsurgency to really put their thinking caps on in all missions, really. I mean, Aisha needs your think needs your brain in, in a different way to what overture needs it but then there's missions like brimstone in the middle that need your brain in two two capacities 
what to shoot at when shooting it, but also to think about the bigger picture and what impact speaking to civilians and all that sort of stuff would have. I think and, it's a really good point you bring up there, James, because what what you essentially do when you when you create a mission is you kind of maybe you do it uh, without thinking about it too much, but you're adding layers of complexity into people's thought process. Uh, you know, one thing that always impresses me is the amount of information and the amount of um, kind of information processing that is going through the field leaders and then the squad leaders below them. And the more people you have, you know, I, I normally as a GM, I'm listening into into the field leaders net or the squad net and there is a huge amount of information flowing up the chain um, and then flowing back down the chain. And even on operations like today, which, uh, you know, Overture, it, it started with a fuck up. It, one of the teams went the wrong way. And you think, well, this is supposed to be a much slower pace. Uh, you know, this is easy. You should be able to manage this a lot easier than, let's say, a high contact Aisha type of thing. But it still happens that information is flowing up and information is flowing down. And then as you add layers of complexity by introducing intelligence and introducing civilians in a in a armed you know population, uh, and then you have vehicles and you have maybe a, a vic that's parked on the side of the road that could be an ID or it's not an ID. Did they say there's going to be IEDs here, etc.? Those layers of complexity add flavor to the mission, and um, I think it's it's trying to find a balance between that and overwhelming people as well. Uh, it's certainly something that I've been playing with more and more, particularly in Parable, which has become quite Intel heavy, etc. You know, uh, I think it's the beauty of, of being able to have these kind of missions. Definitely. Um, someone in the chat, yeah, the term dicker is, is a British Army term. I think we use it colloquially now because it's a lot of people in Unitaf from the British Army and, and I think the term Decca originated from Northern Ireland when they used to um, basically like low-level scouts that used to observe stuff and then when they bundle in, into the back of the snatch land rovers and stuff. But certainly people like Skelly and stuff use it um, co you know, commonly to describe uh, somebody that's essentially passing intelligence onto the enemy force. Um, so yeah, it, it, if you hear the, the term Decca, it's essentially usually somebody that's unarmed that is... And, and when we role-play Dickers... Um, usually what we try and do is use binos that could be like in a building or whatever and then try and do the radio animation to sort of make it obvious that they are um, communicating. And um, really interesting, actually, um, topic because uh, like where do Dickers fit in the rules of engagement, do you think? Well, they, they're still unarmed combatants, but if you have suspicion, they... Uh, pass on enemy like intelligence to the enemy it's good to detain him I'd say or is there like a hard definition for it yeah it's a bit it's a bit of a I had this conversation with somebody in Utah from the army about in reality what they would do with the dicker but again I think it comes back to you'll notice in the ROE now it doesn't say you can kill a dicker or you can't it basically has those four points from from the Geneva Convention which basically state you know uh, and I don't know I'm off by heart yet, but proportionality is one of them, which I was joking with Matt about today, which is, you know, any response to an act has to be proportionate to the one that, that's received. But a, a dicker is essentially providing evidence to the enemy. So they fall into the same category as a spy 
or a saboteur in that sense. As long as you can prove it, you've got reasonable certainty. I think the problem with most stickers in our missions is how do you prove that they are actually what you think they are? Um, that's the biggest challenge. Because what we don't want, really, is players just going around seeing a guy with bios and going, he's a dicker, bang, dead. You know, that's not what we want. Um, but, you know, if you can prove that they are, however that means you do that or whatever, um, then a proportional response, you know, could be warranted. But I don't think at any point shooting him in the head is proportional. Definitely not. But some things I, I notice is that when they detain the diggers and they look at his inventory and he might just spawn with a radio. And at that point, it's clear to him, oh, okay, he's relaying intel. Or if you put a... Uh, if he has a phone with him, that's almost always clear cut for them. But uh, I mean, in most of my brimstone mission, if someone's sitting on a rooftop with binos, it's it's a dickers. I try to make a clear distinction, but it that's I mean, it's not always the case. Yeah, but the question is, you know, what do you do if you think of Black Hawk Down, for example? Uh, if you saw the movie or you, you read the news stories about it, you know, it's a couple of fifteen-year-old kids with cell phones who who call ahead and tell them that they're coming. Do you go out and arrest every 15-year-old with a mobile phone? Uh, yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult, and that's, that's the complexity of, uh, of war and the laws of war. I, I do have a question, actually, for, for uh, ROE terms, but once uh, you guys finish with that, James. No, no, shoot, shoot. Um, no, my, my question is something that came up tonight, actually, and I heard it uh, by chance, um, which was... Um, there was a, a scenario where uh, two armed guys, guns down, not visibly presenting a threat other than they have guns, were walking up and somebody said, well, if they get too close, fire warning shots. Um, and my interpretation of weapons read is you do not fire unless you are fired upon or unless you are an imminent threat, you know, if you feel that you're in, in, in danger. Um, is two guys walking up to you enough to warrant fire warning shots? I don't mm. think the UN fires warning shots, but it'd be good to hear what others think. So I was speaking with James about this in the op, and... Um, we had plenty of time to discuss it, didn't we? <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> yeah, you did. So that situation, uh, I wouldn't say no. The two people walking towards you with the weapons down, they could be coming to assist, they could be coming just to talk. Uh, warning shots uh, are not proportionate in that uh, situation. if I think if they were approaching with the weapons up and pointing towards, it's more proportionate. But uh, after what you said to me, Jasmine, about um, we shouldn't be, um, I, I spoke with James, and it, it is massively dependent on the situation. Um, also, it has to be deemed proportionate. Yeah, and we've really refined our ROE SOP now. And, and for those that aren't really familiar with it, we only had weapon, what we're calling weapon control statuses before. Um, now we have an actual RRE or universal RRE to, to lay on top of it, right? Um, that situation, in, in a sense, has nothing to do with rules of engagement in, in the universal RRE case because weapon state, so the weapon control status, red, orange, green, is a directive of the platoon commander. So that's essentially him saying, right, well, you're not to shoot unless I tell you to. That's what weapons red is in the most Fisher Price explanation I can give of it. Um, the definition of weapons red is that unless you're actually shot at or what's called effective fire, you can't do anything. So 
in the in the weapons control status at least um being unless you're actually shot at you can't um you can't return fire you can't discharge your weapon but i mean that's an order it's not like a it's not a law that's just like any other order it'd be like if your platoon commander said move over there and you didn't do it same thing basically weapons red is used uh in stealth missions for the same reason to prevent you know accidental discharge but say if it wasn't weapons red say if it was weapons orange to 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 put it into a more gray area of what Chasman's saying what out of the new army so like the laws of war would what would the law of war say about about that and that goes back to what matt said which is you know um unless it depends on the circumstance because we're not there but say two guys walked up to you and you knew they had guns and stuff and you said to them stop uh stop where you are don't don't approach any further um we are armed or something like that and they say maybe they kept coming and maybe you raised your weapon for whatever reason it was a checkpoint and you said uh stop do not proceed further or we will discharge a weapon or we'll shoot you or whatever i mean that's where it starts to escalate and you have to make a very conscious decision as a rifleman as to what you do in those circumstances but a lot of this pressure is is on the leaders to to observe the situation and remember that's what the role of a fighting man and a squad leader is and that's why the weapons control status is their decision and not a rifleman's decision i'm sure you've all been frustrated as a rifleman before when you've been told you can't shoot something but you want to the whole idea of the leadership is they're detached from that decision-making process so that they can look at the situation from a slightly elevated position with more information and decide what should the weapons control status be or what should our action as a unit be. Uh, but again, Matt said it you know, pretty much on the head, which is the proportional response to somebody walking close to you can't really result in you firing back at them because what military advantage will you gain from that other than escalation i think that was actually me that put out that radio uh and i then like after a few seconds of thinking about it i i had to specify because i i now know that in overture you have to choose your words very carefully because i've heard more than one time today on the radio that okay we're in contact like what you're you're getting shot at no 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 we're in verbal contact and just stuff like that it, it's it's very again it's a very much very much a gray area and i agree that uh, like these different levels of uh, escalation like it, they have an order to them and that should be followed and in arma this is yeah yeah yes yes Corinne, i did say that myself uh so so for example in arma you sometimes have the, like the typical ai suddenly snaps onto you which is something you wouldn't have in real life because in, in real life if you point a gun at someone they would choose directions very carefully and again this is a game so it's a fairly different thing and just really hard to gauge sometimes but i, I think having these escalation states is a, is a pretty good guideline as to how to proceed on on a, on a squad or like platoon level we nearly wrote it into sop and we may well still do so but i still think it's a good idea talking to and proportionality i think is the biggest thing that you just take away from this new sop is whatever you do should be roughly proportional to what the opponent is doing well if the opponent points their weapon at you then it's fair game that you point your weapon back at them no no you know no problem this warning this idea of warning shots is should not be the first port of call though so unless the enemy's fired at you first, well, you, in that case, you're not going to fire a warning shot back. So what you're really asking is what warrants firing a warning shot? 
and so what I would maybe add to stop and what I would say to everyone listening is if you're not giving verbal warnings to the enemy, and I'm talking specifically, obviously the AI can't hear you, but even when you know it's an AI, make a habit of giving a verbal warning. You know, stop or I will shoot you. You know, put your gun down or we will shoot you. If you're giving them a verbal warning and they ignore it and then they escalate, nine times out of ten, we're going to have more guns pointed on them than they are of us. So we'll always come out on top. But if you shoot first and ask questions later, which has always been our, our I guess, first reaction, um, which is the sort of thing I wanted to ask next, uh, it only ever goes one way and that's up. And what we need to try and do is find our opportunities to de-escalate where we can. Um, not not for brimstone, because, you know, de-escalating brimstone is a near impossibility. But, but you know, things like um, Overture and Herrick in the past, our ability to de-escalate situations only leads to better gameplay, I think, than escalating. Exactly. And again, it, this is something I find really hard to simulate in a, in a game like Arma, because a lot of... Uh how you how or when you would escalate something is dependent on your body language if you are setting up a checkpoint if you are having to let other people pass through even if they are armed and you know about the roe you would very be very careful about your body language so where you have your gun do you have your finger on the trigger do you have your gun ready Uh, just stuff like that is something we can kind of simulate but again then not really and sometimes the AI also does not work in your favor there. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it was also a learning experience for me and just having to be really careful with your words uh, is, is something very important, yeah. So I guess as as game masters, um, the question really is what, what sort of stuff has happened in the past? Um, let's go back to what Charles Manor really originally said, I guess, which is you've got this concept for a mission. I used the uh, names brought up the example of enduring freedom. Um, what other stuff have you seen in the past that that is a direct result of player action that maybe no, I'm not going to use the word ruined because that's probably but the these things um, change the course of missions and it could be a role play scenario. It could be an objective. Uh, is anyone and maybe where you're thinking of, it, of some examples I can I can use oh yeah. <laughs> I would have and, two and directly come to mind, yeah. Two questions. Have you got any, and if so, what are they? And the other thing I really want, why have we brought in this new shot? And because I, I know a lot of people would have read that in, in the setup and gone, hang on, this is a bit crap. We can't just sheet first, ask questions later. But I really want to get to the heart of why we've done it for people that maybe don't quite see why we have. One example to look at were the mission completely changed the space and a few players' actions would probably be the Orc COC like, uh, holiday mission. I know it was supposed to be this sort of, well, not taken too seriously up, but it went completely, and I mean completely off the rails from what me and Chalmy had planned off, uh, like on the start, based on a few players' actions. And <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a weird example to bring up, but I really think that was the case there. But in some cases, um, this also has led to, I'd say, improvements in, in how a mission uh, played out. And I'm sure Matt has some as, as one of the longest standing ones. But we have had entire missions come up out of just a few players' actions. Think of uh, saving Private Vevin in Brimstone. None of that was planned. That was just last thing 
like last minute. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. So it sounds like what you're saying is it can work both ways. That, exactly. That, yeah. You know, a lot of people think you know our oh, assistant automatic rifleman, even though we've buffed it with the trench tool, <laughs> um, you know, bit of a dry roll, carry ammo, whatever. But you can ruin a mission. Oh, ruin. I'm going to stop using the word ruin. You can change the course of an operation. You could even as Matt may even mention, if not, I will change the course of an entire campaign for a single action that you take, which is kind of unique. And I know a lot of people don't pay attention to the story of some of the campaigns and, and we're building systems to make that easier for people to do. But for those that do, you sort of appreciate that every mission is chained on from the from the next and, and your actions can can have a massive impact. But like Zuka said, sometimes it can be uh, it can take something away or it can derail a concept that we had for a campaign, but sometimes actually it can create a scenario. Um, someone gets captured and then a mission needs to be done to, to recapture them, for example. Or yeah, for example, what William says in the chat about that Chinook getting blown up by, we still don't know if it was explosives on board or if it was a tow. Uh, I don't have a way to check, it but charge. yeah. We we inspected the footage after and saw the charge. To be fair, that the, there was a tow inside of it, and I don't know if the that still had ammo. But no, what yeah. happened there was we think that the EOD basically <laughs> just connected the wrong explosive to one that was in his vest accidentally or something. And when we told him to detonate the camp, he blew himself up in the helicopter. Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah. I mean, um, it wouldn't be the first instance of VODs blowing themselves up, uh, as we learned. One of the things we try to do in Unitath, or at least in our system, is to have relatively organized starts to missions and relatively organized ends. It doesn't happen every mission, but but generally, if you've got a good start, you know, the gear and the briefing stage and, and a good end, you know, it's okay. And that, that example of the Chinook in Brimstone, you know, it puts a little bit of a sour taste on the end of the mission because, you know, the mission went quite well, but, you know, but then also on the flip side in the debrief, you go, well, you know what, we can, we can do a rescue mission. And that's exactly what we did. So um, it does, it does work both ways. I don't know if Matt was going to use the example of, of um, Pavis. Which, which example? The entire campaign and the last <laughs> mission specifically. Uh, and the main guy from the campaign. Oh, him blowing up at the end. Well, no, I mean, so in in Pavis there was this big city called Bolabongo, and there was this. It was I'm, I'm right in saying this was Pavis, wasn't I? Where there was that warehouse, and it was oh wait with the fucking commander in it. Right, so the commander, yeah, like we've been on this campaign for what twelve weeks. <laughs> We talk about this in, it's like literally in the script for Core Infantry Training. Yes, yes, um, it is. And so we're in this hangar, and some guy that's been in Unitaf for like three weeks, I don't even remember who it was, maybe they're high up in Unitaf now, um, is stacked on this hangar, and everyone's been chasing this fucking guy for like 13 weeks, lobs a grenade and kills the HVT. Um, so don't, you know, there you go, perfect example of, of you know, there was probably a role play scenario going to follow that. There was probably. Oh, he had uh, so much info. Yeah. But that was it. He was dead. My hands were tied, and that was it. <laughs> yeah. It's gone. The, another, the, uh, another funny but unfortunate mistake made in Pavis was that at the very end of Pavis, the president of the country like drives up in his limo and goes and stands on a podium uh, to talk to us. And we were all like sat in a stadium seat in arrangement. It was just the end of the campaign. It was a bit of role play or whatever. And he's like thanking us for intervention or whatnot. Like a mere five minutes before his limo turned up, Skelly was stood on the podium 
doing being Skelly, pretending he was the president talking to us, just he's saying he was checking the mic was working. Well, little did we know there was a bomb under the podium that killed the president like at the end of the campaign, and that was the end of the story. If only it had killed Skelly, that would have been a lot better outcome. <laughs> Sorry, gentlemen. I was just saying, uh, HVTs tend to be a thing in Unitaf. I mean, uh, the the previous parable, uh, I think Matt was a field leader on this one. They went in, they, they HVT escaped during the mission, like a helicopter escaped. Then they actually managed to catch him during the second mission. Um, somehow the guy got injured and as they were taking him back to base, he died because he bled out. Nobody realized he was bleeding and he bled out. And that was it. You know, we lost we lost the HPT um, and the previous parable as well. And in the second round of parables, we lost an HPT because somebody just misfired. They, they shot, instead of shooting a guy that was next to him, they shot him and, and he died. So yeah, there's quite a bit of HPT loss in, <laughs> in Unitab history for sure. And go go back to the latest enduring freedom, the oil for the one that Ains, Ains brought up. Um, towards the end of that, Matt Matt was role playing a guy, and and we get to a last stand situation where um, you know Matt's inside this building, and you know you've got to bear in mind this is a really intense firefight that's going on, and the mindset of the point man in Unitas, you know, forward fire team is not one of negotiation at that point. But one of the reasons why we bought this ROE in is, uh, in that circumstance, we do want that point man to go, oh, fuck's sake, he's surrendering, I can't shoot him. You know, we don't want you to shoot the guy if he's offering to surrender, because that's where we're trying to, to horseshoe roleplay in, we're trying to bring in the hostage negotiation. And here's how I look at it. You know, I don't know who that point man was, you know, maybe they're listening, Um but I think, Matt, if I'm wrong, you're inside the building. There was no way they would have known whether you were armed or not. But essentially, you were offering to surrender mm-hmm. and you had a bomb on your vest. Well, I think what they did do is they threw a frag in, which, you know, if you're any physicist or whatever, know that a frag and a bomb vest didn't end well, did it? But um, even that aside, um, if you're ever in that situation, um, go with the role play option, go with the de-escalation option. It will almost always be better, I think. I think it's just very difficult for us to um, go from a combat, from a firefighting state to a de-escalation state. It's not it's something we are not very good at, just like we're not very good at ice and conventional, but we're getting better at it. And so the role of this SOP is to help us get better at de-escalation and de-escalation is not going to be part of Aisha as much as we sort of joke about it in the chat there's not going to be a moment where you know there might be a moment where a couple of them surrender and you know a specific situation de-escalates but not to the point that we're talking about with things like uh, with brimstone where there is the opportunity to de-escalate and and going back to enduring freedom enemies surrendering you know it's something you will see and when you do uh, don't shoot them because it's part of the storyline. It's part of the role play. And if you do, um, the whole idea of our campaign system is that you know you shoot a civilian, the other civilians will remember it. And when you meet civilians in the next few missions, they'll say, "Oh, it's those murderous British people," you know, and so on and so forth. So, um, just you know, um, we're introducing these sort of things to to hopefully get you, the players and the leaders, to think more about the impact of your actions. And if anything, to make it more difficult by adding more complexity to the decisions you have to make, like Jasmine said, out of the thousand, two thousand decisions that a field leader or 
squad leader or a fire team that has to make on any given operation. We're, we're layering them with a bit more to, to think about, but not actually just the leaders, but also individuals. Um, and so, um, you know, civilians is one. POW, so people, you know, enemies that are surrendering white flags or running away or weapons down or whatever it may be. And that somebody, and, and I, one of the things I found really interesting about Enduring Freedom was the frustration of the players when somebody that was shooting at them two minutes ago suddenly is waving a white flag and running off. And so many players cannot cope with that situation. They just cannot accept that that person can be let go. And I understand that. And ironically, that's the frustration of real military forces. You know, think about Afghanistan, if you've seen it on any of those sort of um, embedded journalism programs where you know you see that happen you know the rice farmer picks up his ak pops a shot gets it in the arm of a rifleman does some damage and then puts his gun down and they can't shoot him anymore and um, don't get me wrong in real life re is broken as well but it's not all the time um, and that's what we have to strive for as well i think it's definitely going to be a recurring theme in overture what breaking that sort of scenario no the other way around i think that sort of scenario where Players are going to have to be on their toes for that. You know, the guy who comes around the corner, shoots once, runs back into his house and then says, I, I give up. I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. Um, am I the only one that... I, I just don't know if players think of it like this, but am I the only one that thinks of it like this? Like, it's almost more interesting when you know that and you don't shoot it because he almost becomes like this... I don't know. This, like, uh, character that you want to... You want to get him but you can't. Whereas if you just pull the trigger and he's dead, that's it. It's scenario over. No more storyline to it, you know. Whereas if he's like a recurring character and it, this guy just keeps popping up. <laughs> Mike, Mike, I think the main guy's name was today. Just keeps <laughs> yeah. popping up, but you can't get him. You know, you can't get the bastard because he knows that we've got to stick to laws. And then, you know, that's where it becomes really interesting, I think. And you mm. can really make a villain out of some of the role play characters um, and really get the players worked up about really nailing them you know and no doubt someone will end up shooting them outside of RE at some point but i think the more i do have one one kind of related question on that and it's um it happened tonight in one of the missions um i uh i was role-playing a guy and i went and pointed out two dead bodies that had been left behind james just as you guys were about to leave yeah and I, i did think somebody shot this person you know somebody was aiming down their gun and shot this guy but then they didn't bother to come and tell anyone that they had shot someone behind the house? Or is it just because we were in the heat of the moment and we emptied our magazine and we we hit enemies? You know, I think, again, that's another mindset shift that needs to happen. If you are the guy that shot someone, I mean, I think in real life, you would know that you shot someone. You know, in, in Arma, maybe not. But if you put yourself in the in the shoes of that soldier and then you kind of all get together. Did you shoot anyone? Yes. Where was he? He was behind that house. I mean, would you be expected to remember? And would you be expected to then think, be the one going to point it out? I think anyone in a real life scenario that's killed someone will know that they've killed someone. And the reality is that in our rollout, the motto realism where it matters, in a brimstone, um, it's Men, from a mental capacity point of view, impossible to remember how many people you've killed. And, and so most of our players, are in that, most of their players are in that mindset of they've already chalked up ten of their fingers and they've lost count. So, so you know, 
why bother counting? Um, in Overture, it's different, and I suspect player behaviour will maybe slightly shift because, as you pointed out, you've got more time to process what's happening, so that's part of it. But also, uh, maybe uh, getting a kill, for the want of a better word, is a le- is a more rare activity in Overture than it will be in any other campaign. So the people in there will maybe get into the habit of reporting it. There are basically no other campaigns where we retrieve bodies and casualties like we do in Overture. Or have done an overture, and so it will be maybe quite specific to that. Um, yeah. I suspect in that scenario, uh, and and I was stood in a, in a scenario around the same time where we knew there was an enemy uh, who we didn't think was dead, who we could retrieve, who, who was essentially immediate casualty at that point, uh, but we couldn't get them straight away because of the ongoing firefight, and so it's the risk of further casualties through trying to retrieve the body straight away and then of course the longer that that prolongs for the more chance that that there is of bodies that are outside of the immediate area being forgotten so i think we can we can definitely encourage people to to report it and mark it make a tally of how many people have been have been killed but um i think the player action is probably around right there which is let's protect ourselves as much as possible and then just like any other casualty, we'll try and retrieve them. If it was a friendly casualty in the same position, I think it would have been the same predicament as much as we would have wanted to retrieve them. We need to deal with the threat first. Yeah, in, in my kind of sick, twisted GM mind, I can see a uh, press reporter showing up, you know, taking a couple of photographs of a body that was left behind. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, did find, I did find that the Sev came up to us and sort of said, oh, there's two dead bodies over there. Uh, no, a dead body over there. And then we went there. One was injured. I ha- I had a little look around and I found another one and then another one and um so yeah I think I think players will just get used to to, to doing that in overture. Mm. I think it's also worth noting that <clears throat> whilst yes uh part of the objective is to you know stop any casualties if possible um we're never going to value the life of someone that's just been in combat with us more than our own team so we're going to prioritize getting our own team sorted first and then working on trying to find and save anyone else if possible. But well, according gonna, to the laws of war. We're um, not, what I'm saying is we're not going to take someone yeah. down in a firefight and then immediately rush to that body, no. drag them into safety. Like it, We'll get to them and, and help them as soon as possible, but not at the expense of our own team. I suspect anyone, and there will be someone in Unitaf that's got literal real life experience in this, but... Uh, and then maybe can comment on it or or whatnot. But I suspect in real life, um, in that same scenario, even though the law of war may say that all casualties should be treated equally or whatever, that there is always going to be that camaraderie of um, looking like you're following the rules, but realistically looking out for your own more than you're looking out for the enemy. I can't imagine a scenario realistically where, you know, given... Um, an MCI or something that the enemy is treated exactly the same as as a friendly, especially when there's personal relationships between people and whatnot. And there's always that cohesive unit in a combat unit where you know even though the law that's made way above your head applies, you know everyone can sort of skirt it as as much as possible. But um, in this mission tonight, I I was at one point triaging exactly that one friendly, one enemy, and given them the same amount of attention, I would have two friendlies. If it was an MCI, maybe I would have prioritised the friendlies a little bit, but then when the platoon commander came over and asked me, I'd say, no, no, treat them all equally. You know, and I think that's a realistic way to look at it. 
So I think, again, if anyone's got any questions for him in the chat, but I think uh, one of the things that the main topic of the, the podcast, and I think maybe we've gone into it in good detail, I don't know, people listening probably have a better opinion of that, was really about these sort of different types of missions that we've been putting on and the fact that um, some of these are, are very different to, to what you may have gone to when you first joined UNITAF. But at the same time, we recognise that you know a lot of people do enjoy them and they are a completely different experience. And UNITAF is all about choices, as I said at the start. So um, these are things that you, you'll probably see more of. Um, Parable, you know, is very Intel heavy. It still has contact. You know, Overture is, as Jasmine said, maybe less Intel heavy, but but very high role play interaction. And I think they're great platforms for us to get used to things that we don't have chance to properly do it in combat missions. You know, like we can spend more time making sure that our security is on point and our formations and our ROE. You know, you don't have a lot of time to think about these in these in these bigger missions. And we talked a bit about the systems that you need to developing to make it easier to identify, you know, what type of mission you're going to uh, because of this difference that we're seeing now from where we sort of middle ground that we started at and we introduced Aisha, which is a sort of heavy conventional. And now we're sort of going completely the other end to introduce some really low contact, high RP scenarios. Um, there is another side to this story, which, you know, I've seen a few proposals for campaigns that are really different, you know, far from peacekeeping, maybe policing, you know, is probably the better word used. And there is another area of this that we need to look at that, that we'll discuss as staff, which is, the fact that our whole experience-based system sort of relies on the fact that each mission is not equal, but but is actually demonstrable of what the role you, you are in. And it, it's certainly not fair to say that an, an automatic rifleman spending two hours in Brimstone is the same as in in uh, Overture, for example. So th that's a, another complexity that we have to look at. And if you if we ever deny operations or campaigns, it's usually be down on that basis, which is how we work that work through that scenario do you, any of you got anything else you wanted to bring up on i guess on rules of engagement we haven't really talked about prisoners and prisoner handling which was sort of another there part was of there was one thing um yeah. it's kind of more general aspect but um due to some recent since uh some incidents uh recently as well i just want to stress that um, we should always be treating so RPs are always going to be um, following uh, the SGM's instructions or they're going to be having a certain character to play in etc um, and regardless of that I just want to stress that you know um, you, the idea in game no matter the fact that you've got a gun and someone else might not as it was uh, said at the beginning of this mission today um, just to treat people with respect um, and to think about who that character actually is, regardless of the fact that we, you know, we banter and mess around with each other a lot. Um, forget that a, a certain character is an RPA in the unit, and try and think of them more as the human being that they are, and and the character that they're playing in op. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's just an important thing to remember, um, and we've been quite lax in it recently. Um, something that I want to see a bit of an improvement on. Yeah, that's a really good point, which is, um, notwithstanding everything we said in all the rules and procedures, is coming down to the actual conversation you have with a role player, whatever character they're playing is. And, and this is actually in the code of conduct, and it's probably something that people don't think about too much, which is 
part of the code of conduct under the realism section, I think it's the first one, says act in a way um, that's realistic given, I think it's like given, I should probably know this off, uh, given the circumstances or whatever. Remember that even though in UNITAF we're not pretending we're in the military, it's a big difference between UNITAF and a lot of other units. We're, like I'm not pretending that I'm actually an officer, and like nobody calls me sir and I don't shout at people and all that sort of stuff. We, you know, we're in roles, but we are in, in reality role playing. So when you see a civ role player, you also have to remember that they're role playing too. So like, who are they? Like, what character are they playing? Like Matt said, you know, if you meet a guy on the street and he's, you know, wearing like a, a robe and you know, it's pretty tatty and whatever, you can maybe make an assumption that he's a local civilian or whatever. In the case of Brimstone, and you know, you maybe treat him slightly differently. If a guy rocks up and he's got, you know, like a full-on uniform on with six stars on his. Um, epaulette you know you can probably fathom from that he's a general or something to that effect and as a rifleman um even if you've got a gun you're not going to treat someone whether they're friendly or an enemy that's role playing with six stars on their epaulette like they're a rifleman like they are in, in essence superior to you and you would definitely defer that role play situation to your superior in that circumstance and again, I don't want to use actual examples, but there's been plenty of examples of HVTs or roleplay scenarios where um, a point man or, or someone in our force has treated the role player completely in the opposite direction of what they should have, bearing in mind who that person actually was. Um, and that can have a detrimental impact on the mission. So you really have to be able to read the situation well. And if you're more senior or even if you're not in a leadership position, you need to be able to identify that and go, hang on a minute, that's a policeman or that's an ANA uh, platoon leader or whatever, and that we shouldn't allow uh, an automatic rifleman to give him shit because it's going to come back on us. It's going to have an impact on the mission. And that's that SOP where it's saying now, you know, if you identify something going wrong, make sure you deal with it there and then because you can maybe have a positive impact on it. I mean, think about the difference of, I don't know, like I'd use a really radical example, you know, uh, somebody rocks up on the mayor of Kunduf, you know, in Brimstone starts giving him shit and all that and you know if you saw that happening and you think hang on a minute there's something not right about this if you went up and said to him excuse me don't worry about that guy you know he's mentally incapable let come over here and i'll i'll deal with you sir and all that you can recover that situation don't let it happen because the role players do notice it they'll report back to the campaign manager and it'll have a negative effect on the campaign um, this is a really interesting point that Matt made, and, and, I, and I do think that our general attitude toward role players is we approach it as we are superior to them. Sometimes that's because we've got a gun, or sometimes that's because the majority of role players are civilians. But you're really misreading the situation if you approach it from that standard position, if that's fair to say. Also, a lot of that can, I personally think, be uh, attributed to... And I'm just picking this as an example in some of the more conventional ops like Aisha or in some of the typhoons. Basically, all of the interaction I had with Silver Peace was just us screaming at each other through a wall. And I found it really refreshing the day to see that the Silver Peers like took a more human role, like a, a more. Uh, they actually tried to portray this this human instead of, as we had in some brimstone as well, just shout at some guys, run off, uh, just be a pest, so to say. So. Also something for SGMs and GMs to like have an eye on. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I, I don't want to um, feel like I'm pounding the players too much either because it does work both ways. And 
and they're all players would have encountered role players at times that they they think actually that role player is not acting how that character should act and that does happen don't get me wrong um and so it does work both ways and we have to to work to make sure our response to role players is right but also the role players response to us is right and a perfect example of that without again trying to go on too many um specific scenarios is i definitely felt and i know some of the other officers did that earlier on in brimstone when we first started encountering the syrian police is that they felt they were superior to us even though we should be respective of it's their country um the snp which is a really weird abbreviation because it's scottish national party but the syrian national police um in theory uh, at one point they shot at one of our patrols and when we rocked up into their police station, I don't think the police, the chief of police for that matter, would have been threatening us when we rocked up in like six MRAPs with 45, 50 men. I think they would have been a bit more scared. So it works both ways. Um, you have to, it's really hard to do in the heat at the moment, but both role players and us, we have to be able to read the situation and understand what is the appropriate reaction. And we do get it wrong sometimes. And it works both ways. We have to give more better guidance to role players, but also make sure that we're responding the right way so that again it's all about de-escalation and, and that scenario there where you know the syrian national police they fired a shot at us i think it was a warning shot or maybe they hit us and we rocked up to their police station to have a strong stern word with them about it shouldn't escalate into a firefight that should be something that we can control and de-escalate and it's all about restraint and the way we deal with it um so if- fun fact there uh, i distinctly remember that because it was one of my first like brimstone ops I used. Uh, I've been Zeusing every, well, been everyone I've been present for. I've been Zeusing from the start. Uh, that was completely Arma's mishap, and I think the way it played out and the thing you're right. Uh, how we how we how we let it play out was just amazing to see. And Let, let's yes, talk about it. Yeah. Let's talk about it from the top because that that's a great example. So, do you remember exactly how it played out? I think I remember. But I don't know if you want to. I don't know if it was either someone trying to RC a unit or the unit being set as green for and somehow shooting at blue for. Something along the lines of that. Popped a few shots. We then took control of it. And it still like it got escalated more and more with us trying to play it off as hey, please ignore it. So in a sense. But of course players can't really ignore being shot at. Yes, I think you're right. So it was in Limar. Yes, it was one of the... Yeah, like and there four. was uh, no contact. This is maybe like 40 minutes into the mission. There was no prior contact as far as I'm aware. And there was like two police officers at the T... Sorry, just dropped my pen. At the T-junction. And you're quite right. It was like an AI glitch where they were maybe like... Briefly, they went to like the wrong side or whatever. And the AI like snapped to the right and shot a friendly. So it was completely unintentional from the game master's perspective that the police engaged us. Of course, what happens, and and I think what happened was we tried to recover it. So the crossroads element, uh, which is the GM's element that speaks to the field leader, in this case, the company commander, sort of tried to to deal with it and de-escalate the situation outside of role play. But of course, if you're the point man, you're not going to let that go. You know, and that's the hard thing. The guys that experienced that and got shot by them are not going to let it go. They're going to be like, they shot us and they don't understand. We haven't got time to explain to them. Oh, it was armor. Don't worry about it. You know, so um, when they went into the police station, a very 
heated argument started between the squad leader and the chief of police about you shot us and the chief of police wasn't helping with the de-escalation of the situation neither was our squad leader and and it escalated into a shootout in the syrian national police station in the mar so that's something that you know we want to avoid but a perfect again a perfect example of what goes against us the game ai but also people and when you've got 50 60 70 people in a, in a mission there's plenty of opportunity to, to go wrong i do uh, i do wonder uh talking about civ rps you know I, i've played with a lot of them now and uh, some very good ones some some people who are keen to do it and i think do it once and then they never want to come back because they didn't enjoy it um but there is kind of a recurring issue, I would say, which is that you sometimes get a comedy element in what, as a GM, you're trying to make a serious mission. And I know a bit of comedy is good, and sometimes it, it breaks the, the tension maybe in the mission, and uh, at some points it does fit well. But it, in my opinion, it, it's a huge break of immersion, uh, you know, to have somebody walk up to 10 guys with guns and and i don't know say something stupid to them or you know insult them or it just it just doesn't happen in real life you know if there's a these uh, 12 uh, soldiers coming out of a building where they've just annihilated 10 people nobody sticks around right everybody runs away so it, it's it's hard to find that balance as a gm where you want to make the mission enjoyable you want people to have fun but there's also a level of seriousness to civ RPing and and um at least certainly in the missions I do, I, I try to convey that, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're playing. For example, in Overture today, I had briefed all of the, the guys. I actually wrote them a little document, but it was, you know, your country is basically falling to bits. You're a civilian. You don't have food. You don't have medicine. Here comes the UN. How are you going to treat them? Put yourself in those shoes. Are you going to just go out and insult them or are you going to welcome them? Uh, and I, I, I didn't hear all the interactions, but I think it worked pretty well tonight. Um, yeah, so, like, this is my attitude on this. And, and my, my philosophy on, on people doing stuff wrong, if you like, is to always look at the person issue and the instruction first. And this is the, the philosophy that I tr I, I've tried to build into UNITAF and, and, and we use from a leadership perspective. Um, our attitude in UNITAF is always, if something goes wrong, we first want to identify, is the fact that it went wrong in accordance with SOP? So could following SOP have prevented it from going wrong in the first place? And if the answer to that question is yes, then it means that the person or the actors in the situation weren't following SOP. So the result of that situation is we need to speak to those people and make sure they're aware of the SOP and that it exists and so on and so forth. The second step is if the answer to the, the question is no and the person and the situation couldn't have been solved by following SOP or would have been counterproductive, then we look at the SOP and we change the SOP. That's like the basic flow chart. And then if you strip it back and go, well, in this case, it wasn't SOP, it was my personal instruction. In any given mission, most game masters will, as you put it out, brief the um, brief the role players on what they want behavior-wise from them. And that's usually outside of SOP because it will be you know, specific to that mission. And they may say, yeah, we do want you to be humorous or no, we don't want you to be absolutely serious. Um, if you've given them the instruction and they don't follow it, that's very different, I think. Now, sometimes it could be the way you give them the instruction. And, and role players aside, when you're giving instructions to people or orders or commands, in this case, in any sense, you need to be as clear as possible. And sometimes you can oversaturate them with information, either verbally or written. 
it's really important to make sure that the key points that you're trying to give them are key you know are outlined as key and, and i think i even said this to some of the gms the other day about a mission which is even though the op orb was extensive and had all the information in um right before the mission what were the top three bullet points what are this every mission has like two or three things that are so important that even though they're in the op board and buried in there somewhere you must make sure that everyone's aware of it in the verbal briefing or whatever and just remind them and that could be as simple as giving them a role play profile like jasmine probably did tonight and then saying to them just before execution remember what i said everyone uh don't do this make sure you do that blah blah blah, blah. to be super clear because then you can identify in the debrief you know was it my instruction that was wrong or did they not follow my instruction? And if we didn't follow my instruction, was it because I was overly convoluted or not clear? Or was it because they have ill intent? And the very, very last thing I usually come to is ill intent. I don't think anyone deliberately does anything wrong um, or intentionally against what the intention was. But whenever that is the case, we always obviously address it. And, and you know, there have been a few examples of it. Um, and that's generally how I look at it. So whenever you see it always look at yourself and make sure you know was i being clear enough and even ask that person you know if if you've got a role player that is, is doing that maybe say to them in the DM, if you know was my instructions clear was there anything about it that was unclear and and then you can very quickly identify whether it, it was just them being thinking they were just having a laugh or whatever or whether it was something to do with your instruction so just quickly there's a very interesting discussion going on in in, in chat here and i think something that is a also a great point of discussion regarding RP. I personally have tried to uh, design some FTXs around this whole mission support thing. And RP is the one thing I've always struggled with. Like how do I condense something that is so individual to each person and each like situation into an FTX? And uh, there's been some good discussion. Like how about we have direct SOP that says how you have to act as a civilian role player and trust me, I've tried, but it I think it works better as a as a sort of guideline. And I don't know, maybe James has some insight there. But Yeah, I think I think you're you're quite right to say I mean all shop is a well, no, I'm not gonna say that because people will say I think SOP is not a guideline, it's a procedure to be followed, but the key word is the S, the standard. Um in role play, um the word standard is a bit a bit weird because every character is different like you say so shop for role playing would have to be much more broad than that and i think that's what what you're saying and i'm absolutely all for it and, and with a lot of sops that don't currently exist it's because we haven't felt a need to add it or because nobody's wrote it yet i'm sure if someone writ, had, had wrote or written sorry i'm sure these are the right tense um sop for that specific subject we would introduce it and i think the right way to approach that is like generally as a role player how should you react? And it should talk about what we talked about, like what are the different levels of, of authority? Like what should you do if um, a blue four, one of the UNITAF soldiers, puts their gun up and says, don't move or I'll shoot? How should you react in that scenario? Should you escalate or de-escalate? What you... Just talking about the concepts of like who is your character and how should you interpret your character profile and things like that. And conversely, we, we can do the same from the military side and say how, and we have done it a little bit in the new SOP for, for of engagement and for prisoner handling how should we react to it what do you do if a guy approaches your personal space and when is it right to put your gun up or give them a verbal warning and that sort of thing so i think there's absolutely um area to discover there i don't think you can ever teach me to put on a decent accent or 
you know, speak like a woman. You know, there's people that are good at that. And, and was pretty much everything in UNICEF is teachable. I, I don't think that is going to be teachable. So I think we focus on the people that want to role play. Like, how can we give them the information they need to be successful at it? That's what the SOP should aim, aim to do. And I think there's definitely uh, room for that. Right. So just quickly off the top of my head, uh, if I had to imagine a Civ role player FTX in, in this, this mission support style FTX, it would probably have to be something that... I just want to tell yeah. you, in the UK, if you join the police, yeah, um, they sit you down in a room with uh, a role player, essentially, and they'll act out a scenario like of an escalation with a member of the public. Exactly. Yeah. About how you react to it. So I think, and I hope that's what you're going to say, a perfect practical FTX for role play would be exactly that. A really in- antagonistic role player as an instructor. Exactly. A fully armed guy who has to, how do you deal with that? So it's not so much about, you know, death by PowerPoint. It's actually about what we're trying to solve the problem of. What we're trying to solve, we want to solve the problem of de-escalation. So the practical FTX would be, right, let's find escalating circumstances. Your mum's fat or whatever, and like some civvy shouting off a balcony, and how do you de-escalate that situation? Or a uh, policeman won't let you out of the checkpoint without paying $200 a map, jam go, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And, you know, how do you de-escalate that you scenario, that for example? <laughs> Just <laughs> that, that one was great. Matt, Matt was leading an op, and I was role-playing as a civ policeman, and I said, 200 euro or whatever to pass the checkpoint and he wouldn't give it me so i reached into his backpack and took 600 so uh, admitting to a bit of a breaker stop there and uh, <laughs> that's fine that's not a breaker stop is it it's not a game what happens in zoos stays in zoos mr oh, james yeah, sorry, I'll, the reprimand. Sorry. <laughs> I'll send you a tea superior <laughs> <laughs> no but what, what i was thinking and that i just while i have you guys here maybe some input would be great but I'm sure you've heard of a ops called Checkpoint RP. No. Where you where you have like people constantly uh sort of but you have like a, a, some road you're defending, some town you're defending and you have people come up to you with different situations like you have to check their their car, they have special things they talk about and I think something in the sense of that exactly like uh, Arstotska, like that game where you have people come up to you, you have to check them, stuff like that, would work really well as an FTX in that case, where you could have one part, one party of the attendees defending this checkpoint and having to play out or de-escalate. And you have this RP that's trying to rile up or play his role and come up with different roles. And uh, I'll think I'll, I'll put something in like that and see how it works. Because I mean... I think if anyone's interested that's listening, either live or in the recording... Reach out to you know Matt Zuka or me if if you're interested. You know there's people that write SOP all the time, and you know if you want to start SOP on it or work with a team on it, we can spin up a group. Um, I think we could probably pull some SOP together for role play, and I definitely think there's a decent practical and and quite enjoyable I think FTX in in that. Um, and I think our aim here is all about, as you probably heard from what we've said, all about de-escalation um, in order to provide better. Uh, role play experience for also it's all about storylines and intelligence uh, we can't always be escalating we have to be able to de-escalate it's part of um the challenge of what we do and if we only ever escalate you know missions will only ever end one way and so we want that ability to 
let situations develop um, like they would in real life. Um, just a, a warning, if anyone has got any questions, to, to put them in the chat now or to, to do the raise your hand feature when I was talking, because I'm conscious that um, <laughs> we, we were all in overture tonight. And I asked the guys to come on, and uh, we've we've been going almost the allocated two hours, so I don't I don't want to push on for too much longer. But I, I will just say a couple of things um, from the recent SITREP. Obviously, the entrenching tool chains, we, we've yet to really see that bed in yet. So that might be a topic for another day. We talked a bit about the rules of engagement, the new policy for civilians, for uh, captives, detainees, which we didn't really talk too much about tonight. But you can go and read it. It just talks a little bit about when you can detain someone. You can probably gauge from the topic of tonight. You know, it's not really appropriate to go up to any civ and just say, you're detained. You know, um, again, it's just about thinking about reality of the situations um other than that you know there's a big change for the roadmap which we've we not really talked about tonight but if anyone's got any questions about the roadmap i'll post a link to it in in the chat now maybe you've seen something on there you've got a question about again feel free to throw them out um and the l plates we've probably seen from from the update but we've opened out the use of the l plate so before you you couldn't have any combat experience in the area and now it's for anyone at T0, which was something we wanted to do to increase the usage of the, the L-plate slot. So lots of, of nice changes. We talked about the SITREP ones and the changes with the op-ords. So that pretty much summarizes, I guess, the um, the SITREP of, of recent. Uh, but there is another SITREP coming up pretty soon um, to talk about some other changes. They're probably going to be a lot more retrospective and less perspective. So to just talking about things we've actually done rather than stuff we're doing. Um, and if you look on the now section of the roadmap that I posted, um, and for anyone that's listening on demand, it's unitedtaskforce.net for its roadmap. Um, you'll see in the now section what we're working on right now. And the ones to look out for, I guess, that are really relevant to, to what we talked about tonight is that 65, so dossier profiles for role players. So I had Jasmine talking tonight about providing these profiles to players when they're role playing. That's something that will be on the website. So players will actually have, role player characters will actually have dossiers so you can add notes about when you spoke to them think about overture if you spoke to a guy called Derek like you can find his dossier and then make a comment Derek was carrying a frag grenade or whatever um, and being able to have that on the back of that this sort of instructions for the role players like is that person a confident person do they you know how should they act that sort of stuff um but yeah, there's loads of stuff in there. I'm not going to go over it because it was in the syrup. But if you do have any questions about the roadmap, or if any of you, uh, Matt, Zuko, or Jasmine, have any questions, fire, fire away. But in terms of the next syrup, I, I guess it'll be early to the middle of August, so quite soon. I'm just scanning. Uh, Matt, you may have been scanning. Is there any questions? Oh, yes, from Pete. No, that's Pete. too big. That's too big. Okay, no, no, we'll, I we'll can answer it. Quick. <laughs> uh, PVP and FTXs. The official stance on PVP is no, but I, I I know it's been used in some vehicle stuff and whatnot. But the the specific stance on on specifically infantry PVP. So say if you were doing mount to train people PVP is no because of the the learning objective is is the actual exercise and what happens more often than not is people get too competitive and then forget that they're trying to actually learn anything notwithstanding the fact that even though from a realism perspective you'd think fighting humans is better with actually fighting ai so that's what we should train against so in the shortest way possible 
no, but there may be some outlying circumstances. And if there are, the NCOs will always ask, so we can answer it to them directly. Uh, any others? Yes, we did justify the key information panel. We do watch the suggestions list. Ooh, Teddy, that might be a good one. Um, he's asking, how would we, and I'm hoping I'm understanding this right, Teddy, how would you have the standard rifleman more involved into RP situations and so they can connect with the mission more? You just, you have the RP is spread out among the force so that people are at least in airshot and or able to talk to them and the lower level stuff doesn't always have to go straight up. Like, not every RP situation has to go straight up to the top fucking leadership of the mission. Like, the lower level stuff of maybe there's a guy at your stall who's trying to sell you something. Um, you have bits like that um, that don't always have to go straight up to leadership, and that's how you get other people involved, from my experience. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I guess a lot of RP gets rooted towards leadership and interpreters because if they're an important person with intelligence, that's why. But um, I, I, I never really got the feeling, I guess, that it was intentionally or, or somehow led towards escalation. But so it is an interesting point. Um, yeah, I don't. I'm open to ideas. Yeah, I agree with I agree with Matt with what Matt said. I mean, uh, certainly from a, a GM perspective, um, the message I give my RPs is talk to everyone, talk to as many people as you possibly can about whatever topics you can come up with and, and think of that are related and kind of within the brief. Um, you know, what we're trying to achieve as far as RPing goes in this town is that they they get these three key points across, but the rest of it you can ad lib and really just, yeah, talk to everyone. It, it's a very good question, and I think uh, something that we can cover in an FTX on on RPing as well. I think I think a lot of the really good situations that I've experienced. Um, as far as RP and gems go, has been stuff that's been um, allowed for creative freedom with the RPs themselves. Um, if RP knows what I'm doing, and I think a really good situation um, would be Sadet Alabak in the green car, um, who had his uh, his cheeky breaky music on that Skelly was dealing with. That was not planned in the slightest, and uh, this was back in Herrick, for anyone that remembers, and. That was a really good situation that a lot of people quite fondly remember. And that started off literally just as um, Zero was like, yeah, just drive, drive, this, uh, drive this car along the road. And if they stop you, just have a chat with them. And we whacked a, a female in the back. I took the guy in the front. And yeah, we attached a music module to the, to the car. And then, uh, yeah, that was it. They were, they were struggling um, to <laughs> remove the music module for a while. And that created a bit of a situation as well. And then, yeah, it was just completely uh, ad-libbed at the time. So, yeah, I think it's uh, very good to have the creative freedom sometimes with the RPS. To allow that expression. Great. Yeah, that's great. I think, Teddy, um, turn it back on you. Um, not obviously immediately, but what would make you feel more involved in, in roleplay? And let us know. And use one of the J channels. And I don't know because I've been in Unitaf for over two years so i can't answer that question and leave a good matter luca jasmine probably have the best idea but then jasmine 
and there's 99% mission support. So again, probably doesn't have the best idea. So um, I mean, we're the wrong here. crowd. We're the wrong crowd. To I don't think question. I don't think I've ever interacted with an RPer uh, when I played infantry. What we've determined is Teddy is the most qualified person to answer his own question. He is because today he was a he was an RPer today, and uh, yeah, yeah. But definitely, um, let us know. Um, that that would be something be interesting. Uh, did we get any other questions, or are we? Are we done? Last chance for questions. Again, doesn't have to be on on tonight's topic. Could be on anything. Um, Matt, can I? Uh, sorry, James. Can I? Can I just take a, a chance to before we close? Kind of any other business, but uh, to kind of plug uh, Overture a bit. And I know a few people have offered support in making the missions. And yes, your support is absolutely welcome. Uh, I've got quite a lot going on with Parable and Overture, uh, and also I'm. Happy to spend time with new mission makers, uh, like others have done with me before, taking you through some of the basics or you know principles of what we're trying to do, how we do it, the UNITAF framework, which I'm almost got the hang of, things like that, and um, the way it's been working with with a couple of people that I've been working with is, uh, I'll, I'll start the mission file uh, and then send it over and let them do maybe a day of work on it. And then we have a meeting and we talk about it and critique it and, and improve on it, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I know those of you who have reached out already. Uh, I will be in touch for the next overture. Uh, and if there are any other people who are interested in it and you've done your training, um, you know, you've done your FTX on it, give me a shout. Right. Um... There's so much more we could have covered, uh, but like most half-casts, we get uh, dragged down the garden path. Although I think this time we did a really good job of um, discussing the topic that we planned on discussing, which was really about de-escalation, about role-play, about these not less conventional types of campaigns and how we can get better at them and what we're doing already and so on and so forth, which I thought was, was an interesting conversation. We didn't really plan any of it, so it was interesting to see how it went um, as well. And hopefully we've it's been an interesting listen at least um for those that listen live and those that, that listen on demand um like i said there will be a, a sit rep probably in the next two weeks or so which is unusual because we didn't have one for two months and then there's going to be like two or three within a short period um and we'll probably do another podcast because we've not really talked too much about the new roadmap and, and there's so much in there to talk about so um if anyone wants to do that over the next week, 10 days, let me know. And maybe we'll do a podcast where we talk through some of the great ideas from the roadmap and what the strategy is for that going forward. And, and I want to focus a little bit on, on what's actually coming really soon rather than the long-term stuff because we spend a lot of time talking about long-term stuff. But there's some really great stuff on the short term to look forward to. Um, and on that last question from MTB um, about more RP slots, um, Definitely, I think the field leaders have got the ability to shove them in there, and and they're not. I guess civ RP slots are not detrimental if they're not filled. Um, but there is a point Jasmine probably raise about, um, you know, someone does have to puppet master the the operation, so you need a way of grouping the RPs into a controllable group of people. If you have six or seven of them, it's quite hard for the game master to manage. But in in an op that I did recently, I sort of split them into two groups to to help manage it. So that might be one solution. Um, and, and I guess the last point on, on that is um, for role players that we only just started doing, you know, Herrick was one of them, but are people that really enjoy this sort of thing, talking about filling RP slots. You know, if they joined Unitaf three months ago and stayed only for a month, they, they maybe left because they didn't find that sort of niche of that specific overture experience or that Herrick experience. So 
as we start to do it, as people start to watch us on Twitch doing these type of mops, we're probably more likely to attract the type of people that enjoy um, doing these RP low contact scenarios. And so the number of RPs that we have will increase. So um, there's definitely um, plenty of scope there. Um, I don't know if anyone's planning an aftercast. There was an impromptu uh, after party after Tafcast 5 out of nowhere. But if you, you we leave the chat open like usual. So if you do want to keep chatting, you're absolutely welcome to. Sorry, Zuka, were you going to say something? Oh, no, no, it's just my mic acting up. Oh, that's fine. Um, so, yeah, you're welcome to. And, and like I say, look out for, for, for more podcasts on, on different topics. And if you want to come on and talk about a specific subject, just let us know. But um, thanks to Matt, Zuka and Jasmine for joining me for a marathon six hours, I think, after Overture to, to do this and that. So it's much appreciated. And uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thank Not you the for first the time with six hours. Cheers, <laughs> all.